Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known that what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. so much. Um, just before we come to that passage, actually, I'm be a bit naughty, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to squeeze two sermons into one morning, and um, I know that will send uh, cold sweats down. You're wondering how long that will take, but um, oh well, the doors are locked now, so. <laughs> no, I think the passage works better if it's sort of all, all together, actually. I, I rethought that through the week. So this picks up from verse 13 here. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. We'll come and we'll think about those words in just a moment, but why don't we just pray uh, briefly before we do that, that God would speak to us and would help us to uh, hear his voice this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. One of the beauties and joys of going through it bit by bit, systematically, is that it forces us to confront things that we wouldn't choose if we were to sit here and sort of pick out at random what we would look on any given Sunday. We perhaps wouldn't have this in our short list. And so, Lord, we thank you that it forces us to confront a whole range of different things about ourselves, about the world, and about you. And so, Lord, as we've read those words, they're, they're challenging. They're not the most easy to understand. Maybe in some ways they feel quite, uh, they cut sort of through and, and maybe they, they feel a bit depressing. So, Spirit, I pray that you might speak life to us through your words. That, Holy Spirit, you might minister through me now, I pray, through what's prepared and, and what isn't. And Spirit, I pray that you might minister to our hearts this morning. You might shape us, you might mould us into your people to be who you've made us to be. So Lord, we ask that you would be with us now as we look to you and come to your word. Amen. If you keep that... Um, there in front of you if, if you can get your eyes to that you'll you'll find that helpful I think uh, and it's worth us just thinking very briefly just uh, about what's been going on in the context of this letter of Romans so far just to help sort of put this um, in its place the section that we've uh, been in here in chapters 5 to up to the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, has shown us some of the different aspects of the freedom that we find in Christ's death. We see that in those different sections. At the beginning of chapter 5, we found that we're freed while an enemy, that we're freed from the death we deserved by Jesus dying it for us. We found that we were freed by a better man, that we were freed from the curse that had come from a bad representative working on our behalf by the work of a better one. We found in chapter 6 that we're freed for a new life, that we're freed from sin and shame of the past. Our past dies so that we might be somebody new. We find we're freed for a new master. We're no longer held by sin and by death. We belong to Jesus instead. And then here in this chapter, we see two things this morning. Firstly, we're freed from the law. You see that in the first six verses there. We're freed from the law's demands. So our failing no longer condemns us. And we're freed for a new fight. We're freed from the power of sin to fight against it. And the big thing really, I suppose, I need to tell you at the outset is that chapter seven here is supposed to go with chapter eight. 
but you'll be glad that we're not doing chapter 7 and 8 all in one morning. But it's important for you to sort of hold that in the back of your mind as you're thinking about chapter 7, and this in some ways feels and sounds more negative in some of the language. Chapter 8 has all this glorious hope that actually the two things are to be held together, that the two things are two different ways of looking at the Christian life. But I waffle too much, so we'll just think about chapter 7 this morning. So I want to show you firstly there that we're released from the law. Look down with me there to the first six verses. Do you not know, Paul asks us or tells us. It's the third time he's asked this sort of rhetorical question. He said, chapter 6, verse 3, do you not know? And his point is that through union with Jesus, our old life dies with him. We're dead to sin, we're alive to Christ And his point in saying that is this, is that, therefore, why go back to the sin that robbed you of life and that Jesus has died to end? He's asked us, verse 16, do you not know that you belong to Christ as his servants and you are no longer ruled over by sin? We're slaves for righteousness, not sin. Therefore, Paul's point is, why live as though sin is your master Live as though Jesus is your master. And then we're asked here, do you not know? Chapter 7, verse 1, that we're dead to the law, that we're alive in Christ. That through faith, we've died to the law and its demands, and we're no longer under its condemnation. Therefore, we have hope when we fail and motivation to keep getting back up. We're released from the law. And for Paul, these are very basic everyday truths. As we read them, we'll be thinking, there's not much basic or everyday about this. That's just in some ways quite hard to understand, isn't it? But for Paul, he sees these as being basic everyday truths that would shape how we would live. Do you not know that the law is binding on a person only as long as they live? The word for binding there is is kurios, it's from which we get lord, mastership. The law only has lordship over you as long as you live. And yet Paul has told us twice already that for those who are in Christ through faith, we have died to sin. Chapter 6, verse 7 tells us, For one who has died has been set free from sin. And then verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul's point here is that if you're dead to sin, you're now alive to Christ. Believers are dead to the law's demands. And so Paul's metaphor for describing this here is marriage. And the point here isn't, isn't really about divorce, so I'm not really going to, to talk about that particularly, because Paul's really just thinking of the metaphor of the marriage covenant and those promises, that death signals are released from them, that you can no longer be expected, legally at least, uh, to give that commitment to, to one who is no longer there. It's not reasonable. You're not under the same expectations anymore. The married woman, verse 2 here, or man, is bound by law to a husband or to a wife while they live. While alive, we're bound together. We're one. But if a husband dies, or you could flip it the other way, if a wife dies for a husband, she or he is released from the law. 
His point really in, in saying all of this is, what are you not free to do in that point? You're not free, legally speaking, nor spiritually, uh, to be polygamous, to have multiple marriages at the same time. You are legally and spiritually expected that you have one wife, one husband. However, should one of you die, you're released from that expectation. You also, and here's his point in using this metaphor, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. And that's been his point in chapter 6 from 15 to 23. That the power of sin here is defeated. You've died to the law. The law no longer has the power to condemn you. You've been declared innocent through Christ, through him meeting every demand for you. The power is defeated. But secondly, the penalty of the law is paid through the body of Christ, we're told. The law no longer threatens you with the same death sentence because its penalty has been paid. One has been put to death for you on your behalf. The power is defeated, the penalty is paid. Jesus has carried our sin and paid the penalty for my sin so that no greater cost could possibly be paid than this. There is no longer no threatening demand upon me because there's no greater cost that could be paid than Christ's body himself. And yet, we constantly forget this, I think. We constantly forget that Christ has paid all for us, that there's nothing left owing, and it shows in how we carry ourselves. Because we imagine in the moment of failure that there is something else we need to pay on top of what Jesus has done. Which, by the way, you know, by definition is saying that there is something lacking in what he's done. You might not mean that, you might not be intending to do that, but that's what you're doing bit like this it's crazy if, if if i were to go out to eat in dundee and i meet elon musk uh, and that could feasibly happen because apparently some magazines tell me that dundee is now a hip sort of city and i sort of worry that there'll be an influx of hipsters in the sort of uh, intervening years because of that but uh, we'll cross that sort of bridge when we get to it but i, I i'm out there in dundee uh, and i meet elon musk and he says you know what uh, no worries, Dom, tonight, don't worry, I've, I've got this covered, I'll pay the tab, you know, really, it, it's not a lot for me, I, I, I have this covered, right, and we have a great time, uh, because I'm not paying, so there's no worry about, oh, what thing is the appropriate thing to get on the menu, I don't want to get something that's too expensive or too cheap, no, we just get whatever we want, we eat, we drink, we have a great time, and he probably sends a few stupid tweets that he'll regret, and sort of wipes billions off the share value, but starts getting those sort of emails, all caps, we need to talk from the directors, but who cares when you're Elon Musk, you have pockets that deep, I think you'll be able to cover it. And it comes to the end of the night, and I think to myself, well, do you know what, I, I, I think I'm just going to go and check that the bill is paid. Uh, you know, I've just got this nagging suspicion that maybe, just maybe, he's not been able to pay it. 
you know, I, I, I think what I better go and do is go and check the bill and ask for it. And uh, maybe what I can do is throw in what I have here, which usually in my pockets is about sort of £2.35 in change, a bus ticket and a sort of empty sweet wrapper. Well, I'll put that in because that's all I've got. And I'm, I'm just a bit worried that he's not, when all's said and done, going to quite have enough. And if I at least sort of put my bit in, I'll feel, well, I've done all, all that I could really reasonably be asked. It's crazy, isn't it? He said he has it covered. He has it covered. Of all people, he's got it. The little that I have isn't making any difference. It's not changing anything. And yet we do that with God all the time. We don't think that him giving himself up in his son is enough. We think that somehow we'll add something to it by beating ourselves up, by talking ourselves down, by stirring up negative self-talk, by putting on the sort of sackcloth and ashes, retreating from the world and turning away from enjoyment. You don't need to do that. He does not need that from you. He's good to pay your bill. You know, rather than focusing your heart and your energy and your emotions on scraping together a measly tip that's not needed or refusing to allow yourself to receive the gift he's given by self-flagellating, maybe the best thing the Father could ever ask or hope for from you is that you joyfully receive what he's delighted to give you. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. The power is defeated, the penalty is paid, and thirdly, you're claimed. You belong to another. I don't know if you can ever sort of remember this from school, uh, but there always seemed to be a particularly sort of disgusting collection of lost property that sort of gathered around the PE department. Uh, dirty and smelly, ripped and musty, it would just sort of lie there for months and years on end, unclaimed, unwanted, undesirable, and a sort of sadistic punishment if the sort of PE teachers felt so inclined to give it to you would be that if you forgot your kit, you would have to wear the lost property kit. The kit that's only ever had occasional usage from fellow victims and never been washed ever since. I think we seem to treat ourselves so often as if we are that lost unclaimed, unwanted kit. But the point of the cross, or one of them at least, is to show you that though you were once lost, you've been claimed at the expense of God's own son. If God didn't hold back his most valuable offering, his own son, why would he ever hold out anything else on you now? Why would he treat you as if you lost property? We belong to another we see ourselves like that lost property, but the cross says Jesus has claimed us. We belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, we're told, verse 4. Who better to give you new life than the one who's risen from the dead? And why does he do this? Look at how the sentence ends. In order that we may bear fruit for God. 
Paul's point in this section has been to say, if we're saved by faith alone, not through anything that we do, and that's good and right because there's nothing we could possibly do that would be so good as to leverage favor out of God, that would just force his hand at, oh, well, I'm going to have to uh, bless them now because the way they read their Bible that one time, the way they attended that prayer meeting, well, that's just done it for me. I've got no hope but to give it to them now. No, you're saved by faith alone, not through anything you do. But Paul's point then is, well, what do we do in the Christian life? Does it matter that we do anything? Could we just carry on in sin? Could we, in fact, just carry on in sin? Because it might even just reveal how great God's character is, that he keeps on being gracious to us in the midst of it. And this point is to say, no, it it really does matter. We belong to another in order that we may bear fruit for God. It matters how we live Because God has an intended purpose for us, to be fruitful. Paul puts it in Galatians 5. He speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the sort of fruit that Paul has in mind. And notice, all of these things are beyond actions. These actually are are postures from which our actions come from. So these fruits are less about a tick list of what you're to do, what you're not to do, as a guide on how to live. The technical way to put this is, rather than Paul giving you here an application, he's giving you an implication. See, applications are bad. An application for generosity, for example, would be go and donate £10 to someone. Now, for one person, that £10 could be all the disposable income they have. But for another, that's in the wallet and out again in 30 seconds, generosity completed it. And actually, that's only thinking of generosity as an economic thing. Do you see that? What about a generosity of your time? A generosity of your words? A generosity with your emotions and your heart. See, what the Bible doesn't do is give you applications, needs go and do this. What it does is gives you gospel implications. These revolutionary sort of thoughts that change the way that you would see everything. Which require you to think about and apply what it looks like for you where God has placed you. And notice, that's what Paul is doing here. And that all of these lead to the flourishing of life, flourishing of love, the flourishing of relationships. They're deeply, deeply practical on a personal level between us. We belong to another in order that we may bear fruit for God. We can, through the Spirit of God himself, working powerfully within us, see real, meaningful, a lasting transformation. We were, before Christ, verse 5, living in the flesh, with our sinful passions aroused by the law. And I wonder if you know something of that feeling. I think that you probably do. The feeling of Hearing something that you can't do and nothing made you want to do that thing as much as being told you can't. 
There's, in fact, a, a scientific name for it. It's called reactance. It's where you suddenly feel as though your personal freedom is being threatened. It's why when you see the keep off the grass sign, the desire and the urge to walk on that grass has never been so strong than if they put it there. But there's a more serious example where you know and live this experience. This is the science behind clickbait news stories and YouTube videos. You know, the ones with the titles like, you won't believe what so-and-so did. Ten things you don't know about. Why so-and-so has it all wrong. Don't click, don't watch. Nothing makes you want to watch that video more that otherwise you wouldn't be interested in. And afterwards you look back and think, yeah, that wasn't that interesting. But there's something within you that reacts to it. It arouses your desire to prove them wrong. It arouses your desire to resist the taking of your freedom. Our sinful passions aroused by the law at work to bear fruit for death. And if you think of that fruit of the Spirit there, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, it's not difficult to imagine what fruit for death would be. You just work backwards, work the opposite of all of those things. Fruit that leads to death might be animosity, dissatisfaction, irritation, impatience, unkindness, pride, faithlessness, harshness, indiscipline. Fruit that leads to death. But we're urged instead, bear fruit for God that leads to life. Now, Paul closes this section here for us. We serve not under the old written code, the law, but in the new life of the Spirit. God gives us what we need, him. To really change. We're released from the law to bear fruit of the Spirit. Oddly, Paul will pick that up actually in chapter 8 rather than the rest of chapter 7. But so firstly we see we're freed from the law and then in the rest of this section here we see we're freed for a new fight. And the second point Paul makes here I think is that the law isn't the problem. Look with me there to verse 7 to 13 here. The law isn't the problem. We're freed for a new battle. Sun Tzu in The Art of War says, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you'll also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you'll succumb in every battle. And the danger here, the danger for Paul's readers, the danger for us, is that some would think that their enemy is the law. But Paul wants to show you that God's law isn't your enemy, it's sin that's your enemy. We're not fighting against God's law, but against sin that wants to break God's law. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means, or God forbid. It's emphatic. The law isn't the problem. Sin is. And so there's a legitimate question there, and this is just what I want to show you in these few verses here, is what is the purpose of the law? And Paul, there's five things here I think we see. Firstly, the law tells me what sin is. Verse 7. If it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. It teaches me 
It sets out the standards. It gives me clarity. I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. I wouldn't have known that it's a sin to desire, to lust, and to long after what is on somebody else's plate unless the law had told me so. It doesn't produce sin within me. It reveals it. The law tells me what sin is. But secondly, the law reveals the extent of sin. And he carries on the thought. Because he says, sin seizing an opportunity. And and the word there in the original language, it's um, maybe the best way you could sort of describe it in, in modern English is, it's a launch pad. Sin saw a launch pad and produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The law tells me that to covet is a sin, and yet sin somehow makes me want to do that all the more, even having known it. And it's not that the law is bad, but clear standards provoke my inner rebel, my reactance, to want to fight against them. It shows me how deep sin really is rooted. The law tells me what sin is. It reveals the extent of sin. Thirdly, we find that the law can't change us. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death. What does Paul mean? What is he thinking there when he says that? How how might the law have been promising life to someone and yet delivered death? Well, the promise, which isn't coming from the law, it's coming from misunderstanding the law. And this is Jesus' point always with the Pharisees is, if you do these things, you will leverage favour out of God and you will be saved. Underneath that idea is the thought that you can actually achieve those. You can't. And so what promises life delivers death. Because the more you try, the more you become aware of your failings. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death because the law doesn't change you. You can't find favour from God through keeping the law because you'll never keep it all. Cursed is he who doesn't keep all of the commandments. Paul says here, sin deceived me and through it killed me. That deceit is that idea that he thought he could leverage favour out of God via his performance. Paul was a deeply religious, respectable man beforehand and yet realises that none of that really mattered and none of it was what God was actually asking for. Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you believed Moses, Moses is the writer of the law, if you believed the law, you'd believe in me, for he wrote of me doesn't actually explicitly very often do that at all what what's his point then in saying that he's saying that if you really understood what this was about you'd understand one you can't do it and two you need someone to do it for you you need me the law can't change us but fourthly the law is good verse 12 the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good the law is a gift of God's grace in order to maintain order and justice and to protect especially the most vulnerable, from injustice. To be truly loving, we must be deeply concerned with justice. So the law, therefore, is an act of God's love. The law is a good thing. And then fifthly, lastly, the law doesn't kill people. Sin does. Verse 13. Did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. God forbid. It was sin. It was sin producing death in me, through what is good. The law isn't my problem, sin is. 
But the law is also not my solution. The Spirit's work within me is. We're released from the law. The law isn't the problem. And then lastly, Paul tells us about the war that we wage. Martin Luther King writes about this uh, really eloquently. He said, oh, he probably spoke this rather than wrote it. He says, and in every one of us, there is a war going on. It's a civil war. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you live. There is a civil war going on in your life. And every time you set out to be good, there's something pulling on you, telling you to be evil. It's going on in your life. Every time you set out to love, something keeps pulling on you, trying to get you to hate. Every time you set out to be kind and say nice things about people, something is pulling on you to be jealous and envious and to spread evil gossip about them. There's a civil war going on. There is a schizophrenia, as the psychologists or the psychiatrists would call it, going on within all of us. And there are times that all of us know somehow that there is a Mr. Hyde and a Dr. Jekyll in us. There is a tension at the heart of human nature. And whenever we set out to dream our dreams and to build our temples, we must be honest enough to recognize it. There is a civil war going on within our hearts on the battlefield of desires. This is probably one of the most debated passages in Scripture. And so, for sake of time, and a bit like McDonald's, don't tell you about Burger King's menu, I'm going to focus on the one I think is right and not really say much about the others because I just think that's not as efficient a use of time. There are many ways in which this has been seen, whether this is a hypothetical pre-Christian experience, whether it's a hypothetical weak Christian or backslidden Christian, or whether this is Paul before he's a Christian or as a weak Christian himself, or whether it's Paul now. I'm not going to talk about the others, the merits or not of them, because I'm just going to simply argue that this passage is describing Paul now, and that is really the best way to handle the text immediately where it is. It's also the best way to make sense of it in its context in the preceding chapter or two and, and, and the message to come. It's also the best way of understanding this within biblical theology more widely and within our personal experience. But let me just give you eight reasons that I think Paul is talking in these very passionate, emotive verses about this conflict going on within him, that this is about Paul now and it is ultimately about you if you're a believer and follower of Christ now. Firstly, Paul uses the first person, I, 26 times and the present tense, I do I am, not I was, I used to. Paul doesn't introduce a hypothetical example like this using this kind of language anywhere else. When Paul does think of a hypothetical question, which actually might have a quite real face to it as well in a way, of someone he's thinking will be in opposition to him, he'll say something like, one of you will say. Someone will then say. He doesn't build up a hypothetical in personal language, and it doesn't, frankly, make linguistic sense. Secondly, the person shows signs of regeneration. They show signs of belonging to Jesus. They say things like, he joyfully concurs with the law in the inner man. Thirdly, the present turmoil that Paul is describing here in these verses does not describe Paul's previous life. Paul was not conflicted in his previous life. He was very narrow and single-minded and zealous 
uh, Luke tells us in the uh, accounts in Acts. He was not conflicted at all. He was very clear in his mind as to what he was doing. Fourthly, his language of having nothing good within us, at least in our flesh, is used in this way elsewhere and isn't questioned. Paul in Galatians 5 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. He uses the same language elsewhere. Sixthly, a question might be asked, can the Christian be who Paul is describing in chapter 7 because of what Paul says in chapter 8, verse 2? He says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Does that mean that we can't possibly be who Paul is describing in chapter 7? We can be that because of chapter 8, verse 10. Look a few verses further. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. He's describing that very turmoil and conflict. Seven, if chapter seven is a pre-Christian life and we're now set free, in verse 25 there, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, then the second half of verse 25 completely punctures any hope you would find there. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Why would he land on such a disappointing note? And then lastly, eighth, the context. Chapter 7 answers the problem of chapter 6, and together with chapter 8 shows the whole Christian life. In chapter 6, the problem was, uh, it was all about how we should not continue sinning without care. And yet, the reality is, we all know from experience that we all do sin. So Paul, in chapters 7 to 8, explains what the life of fighting sin really does look like for us. This is about Paul now. It is about you now. And I hope to show you why that would even matter. Firstly, here we see a divided self. Look at verse 14 to 16. We know the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. And there's the contrast between the law and me, being spiritual and of the flesh, sold under sin. The problem isn't outside of us. One of the problems of current sort of language about almost anything and everything is that everything is reduced to being a problem about circumstances and context and systems. Everything is always about everybody else. Granted, there are many problems with systems and circumstances that do indeed need redemption. But if you only ever address that, you will not address your biggest problem in your life, which is 100% of the time, you, me. Your problem isn't outside of you, it is you. The law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. I don't understand my actions, Paul says. Why doesn't he understand them? I don't do what I want. That is good. He wants to do good. But I don't do what I want. I do the very thing that I hate. Sin. He wants to do good. He wants to follow righteousness. He wants to obey the law, but finds himself not. He doesn't want to do sin, but he finds himself sometimes doing it. His desires are realigned. They have changed. There is a huge transformation that's occurred there. I want to do what's right. I don't want to do what is wrong. So he says, if I do what I don't want, 
I agree with the law that it's good. My heart and my thinking has changed. I do love God's law. It's an amazing turnaround that's occurred. My inner being has changed. My old habits, though, die hard and seem to sometimes linger on. It's a divided self. But secondly, verse 17 to 20, there's a capability gap. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Why does Paul say that? He sort of explains it in the next verse. Nothing good dwells in me in my flesh because, verse 19, I don't do the good that I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep doing. Though sin doesn't own me, and my desires have changed, and that evidence is that, it does still wield a power in me, and my actions don't always reflect my inner, my deepest desires to honour and to follow God. So, verse 20, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. See, I find, just like Paul, that I have the right desires. But I also sometimes lack the ability to see those through. There's a capability gap. A divided self, a capability gap. And then thirdly, we see conflicting desires in verse 21 to 23. There's a conflict always going on between good and bad desires. I find, Paul says, and the word there, herisco, it's, um, it's like discovering after experience. I found through experimentation, I found through the reality of life. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. The temptation always seems to be so close to me, especially in the moments where I actually want to do what is right. I think Paul is thinking about Genesis 4 here as he writes this. He's been clearly thinking about Genesis as he's been writing in chapter 5, writing about our union and connection to Adam. And now as he reflects on sin, I think he's thinking about Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, God says to Cain. The word for crouching means lies down in the opening. Paul has told us evil lies close at hand. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is over you is against you. Satan is the ultimate opportunist. I find when I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. And yet, he says here, I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. This word is worth looking at here, this word delight. Because, again, as we say many times, sometimes the translation from the original Greek to English, it doesn't do justice to, to what the word means. He says he delights in the law and is in a being. The word there is to delight in is synodomai. It comes from two different words, sun with another, hedone, sensual pleasure. From it, we get the word hedonist, hedonism, pursuing pleasure. The sense, though, that this word is getting at is the experience, and you'll know it, of perhaps being with a spouse or family, or a child, or a really dear friend who you love. And one of those moments and memories that you'll have, where you feel in that moment, in that setting, in that place that you were, 
your heart was full. A moment where you were just satisfied. You were just there. You were not thinking about anything else before or after. You were just happy, joyful, content. The moment could have gone on and on and you would have been just happy and satisfied. You'll know those moments like me. Those moments where you just feel joy, contentment and peace in your skin. That is the feeling that Paul has here about God's law. And I hope that you can see that only a Christian could possibly feel that about God's word. A moment of just being heartful, content, peaceful, joyful, at ease. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But in my members, I find another law waging war against the law of my mind. My most deepest, most heartfelt desires and convictions, I love and I honour and I want to be faithful to God. And yet, in my body, sometimes I have other lower desires. But something amazing, miraculous has happened in our inner being, in our deepest self, our deepest desires. We long to obey. And yet, we know the reality. The desires of my body, of my gut, wage war against that sometimes. There's a divided self, a capability gap, those conflicting desires. And then lastly here, Paul leaves us with a future hope. Paul doesn't leave us stewing in desperation, without a hope of things getting better. And this is fundamentally actually to be an encouraging passage. I don't sort of quite feel it yet, but by the time we land the plane, I hope that we'll see it. Wretched man that I am, he says, the word is literally like beaten down, worn out. It's a cry of hopelessness. Who will deliver me from this body of death and a cry for help? If this is the experience of the Christian life alone, and this is why I say chapter 7 has to be Robo chapter 8, because it's not, it's not the sole experience of the Christian life. It's, it's an aspect of some moments. It's not all of it. But if this is it, it sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Is there any hope to be delivered from this? And yet there is. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a better future secured for us in Jesus. And here's his summary of it. Here's his summary of all of these verses here, of this struggle, of what it looks like to follow God, to be freed for a new fight where we don't always get everything right. And yet our deepest, most heartfelt desires have changed so much. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. How do we understand that? How do we try to get that in terms that will in any way be able to wrap our mind around well I don't know whether you've ever sort of had the experience of getting an upgrade or an update on a piece of software for your computer but your hardware the computer itself is just too old you have this amazing piece of software that has all these fancy new things within it all these capabilities and yet you just seem to spend hours staring at an egg timer if you're on windows or a beach ball if you're on your Mac. You've got these endless new capabilities in the new software, but the old hardware just keeps letting you down 
and isn't always up to running it. In many ways, this explains our ongoing struggle with sin. Something utterly amazing has happened in your software, within our spirits. There's new software there, new capabilities, new desires, changed desires, changed affections, the things you love, the things you fear, the things you desire, what motivates you, what drives you. But our old software sometimes doesn't quite have the ability to pull us in that direction. Our old hardware lets us down. Don't you know that experience? Don't you know that struggle to pursue righteousness, to get free of sin? So why is this here? It might sound strange to say it, but it's there to encourage you. It's there to encourage you because you're not alone. Everybody else hasn't got it sorted. And so what hope can I take? Well, firstly, your experience is normal. Your struggle does not exclude you from the Christian faith. It proves that you're in. And so what if I feel this morning as though I'm defeated? As though I'm not sure whether I'll get back up this time. Failure is a bruise, not a tattoo. It's not the sum of who you are. But you do need a coach. If you want to make progress, if you want to see victories in this struggle, you'll need a coach. If you want to get better at anything, you really need a coach. Someone who has gone where you haven't been yet. And someone who once was where you are now. And most importantly, you need a coach who's dealt with personal failure. If you were, for example, to start boxing, and you need to train to be a world champion, perhaps they're making Rocky 8, whatever it is they're on now, who do you look for? Well, let me tell you who you don't look for. You don't want a coach with a straight nose. You need a coach with a crooked nose. Why? A coach with a straight nose hasn't been punched very much. They don't actually know what it's like to be knocked down. They may have technical skills. They may be able to get you very fit. But if they don't know what it takes to pick yourself up from the canvas after a knockout, what help is that going to be to you when you get your jaw jacked. You need a coach who knows what it takes to get up from the moments of deepest hurt and failure. How do we make progress? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. You start somewhere and you keep going. And yet, how do I find my blind spots? Because isn't that some of the subtext under this? How do I even see and know the places where it is I need to grow that I just can't see for myself? I, from time to time, wonder as a sort of serious ethical question uh, what sort of world it takes and what sort of circumstances have to collide um, in order for mullets to happen as a sort of historical phenomena. How does it reach a place that somehow it 
It reached what Malcolm Gladwell talks about, that tipping point, that it goes from being a fringe, subcultural, innovative thing to tipping and becoming everywhere. How was it not snuffed out immediately? Like when the first person came back home after asking for a mullet, how did their friends not tell them to just get it shaved off? And then even more, how did it actually start to take off as a subculture? And then beyond it to that tipping point. Presumably, because no one was really there around them to point out their blind spot. And so if you want to grow, you need to have some people in your life who in all love and sincerity and best intentions can tell you, not that though. Not that though. Who for your own good and out of love for you can tell you no. And you'll listen. You need a coach, but you need real friends. Is this all I have to hope for then? Final question. Well, this is one way of looking at the Christian life. Sometimes indeed, it is a struggle. And chapter seven shows us that. And it reassures us and encourages us that that's everyone's experience. And the fact that you're in the fight is the encouraging thing. But now into chapter 8 that we'll focus on in several different parts. We'll see all the wonderful, glorious, victorious life through the Spirit too. Because both are true. That you'll know advances, you'll know victories, you'll know transformation. And you'll know struggle. And you'll know frustration. And you'll know the moments of wishing that you could go further, you could go faster but you're freed from the law and freed for a new fight to bear fruit for life within you and within us. Let me pray and then we will close with a, with a final song together. Father God, we, each of us, come here this morning with different lives, different experiences, different backstories, and different weeks. Some of us perhaps are we coming this morning feeling really encouraged and feeling in a, in a really good place where, where life is, is just going really well. There's lots to hope for and hope in. Um, there's great opportunities coming along. There's a positivity and a sense and awareness of, of growth and, and development and there's encouragement and, and joy in that perhaps even might be in one of those moments, as Paul describes, of heart full, just happy in where we are and where God has placed us, what he's doing. And that's wonderful. And long may that last. But for other of us, others of us who may be coming in this morning, maybe in a really hard place, and maybe it's difficult to see encouragement. Maybe it's hard to see progress. Maybe we're keenly aware of areas we wish we were so much further down the track. Where we wish we were so much faster to learn. Where we're aware of moments that we've not covered ourselves in glory. And maybe it's hard to see beyond that. And to find hope and encouragement for a brighter future. Maybe we're in a moment of being on the canvas. And we just wonder if we can gather the strength in our legs to pull us up and the strength of mind to even want to. 
We're in all sorts of different places. Thankful, Holy Spirit, that you know where we are this morning and you know what we need and that you're interceding for us even now. And so I pray, Lord, that you would work within us now. That, Lord, you would help us see the joy of being freed from the condemnation of the law. Those of us needing that encouragement to be able to get back up, that we would find that. And that, Lord, you would help us to find around ourselves in our lives those people to help us in our journey, in our walk, in our fight. Lord, we pray for those who have that gifting, Lord, to us to be a coach, to help us in areas, Lord, that we would seek them out. And that, Lord, you would grant them your spirit to be able to minister deeply and effectively in our lives. And, Lord, for each of us that also need as well really loving, kind-hearted, good, brave friends who are willing sometimes absolutely for our good to tell us not that though that we would seek them out and that lord you would bind us together lord would we be a church i pray not that is friendly but a church of friends it is a big big difference to be friendly and to be friends to really know one another and trust and love one another to be entrusted with the most delicate and precious and important and yet difficult aspects of our lives and to know that another loves us and cares for us and is deeply invested in us enough to want to help support us. So Spirit, I pray that you might forge that work within us, within our hearts and within us, our relationships. I pray that Lord, we might be as we are, trophies of your grace. We're not lost property. You own us. We belong to you to bear fruit for life. So Lord, I pray that you would do all that deep, deep work within us that can only happen by you, Holy Spirit, filling us and working within us. Lord, we thank you that ultimately this is a passage of hope, of knowing we're not alone. It's not just us, that we are in this together that we will grow forwards and we will make it to the end. We thank you for the wonderful hope of your gospel to us. Amen.